Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 91 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk with Patrick Palace about starting a boutique firm, serving as Washington State Bar President, and more. Today's podcast is sponsored by Zero, beautiful legal accounting simplified. Find out more at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted, and we really think they do a great job. You can visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So, Aaron, I just got back from the Converted Conference. I say got back, but it was just up the street in Minneapolis. And this was put on a marketing conference put on by Lead Pages, which is a local but very popular company that has, you know, landing pages and, and call buttons and things like that that you can use to get people to buy white papers and webinars and sign up for things. Most of the conference was about clicks and page views and conversion and all that stuff. But there was this one guy that I thought might be really valuable for our listeners to hear from. And his name is Noah Fleming. He's Canadian. And he started out by saying he's sorry, of course, which is what the same people at Clio do too. But he talked about the five core reasons why your customers are leaving. Or clients in this case. And yeah, let's just, I, when I say customers, just go ahead and hear clients. One of the things that I thought was interesting is he was not in this online marketing world, really. Um, he sends out a weekly email. That's about as online techy as he gets. And he sends it out uh, with sort of a tip for his uh, potential clients uh, his or his current clients, um, something about himself. He, it's a very kind of folksy business model that he has. And his customers are big businesses that do manufacturing, industry, kind of traditional businesses. So, he's very much in the same vein as, say, a business lawyer or an estate planning lawyer who's going after wealthy clients. So, I thought he was worth listening to. And so, he has five core reasons customers leave. And I thought it was would be worth sort of going over them and, and talking about how that is relevant in law practices. Let's do it. And maybe, well, and let me preface it by saying a lot of lawyers think of their clients as one and done. Right. Business lawyers maybe think of their clients with a longer lifespan. But I, I think part of what I would encourage people to think of is your clients can come back and you can think of them as customers over time. So the first reason they leave is that you screw up, right? You just fuck up and they don't want to come back because they're angry at you. You should probably not get those people back, though. Yeah. I mean, you've lost, you can say you're sorry. You can try to get them back. You can admit you screwed up. Those are all important things if you can. If you want that client back, but there's not a whole lot you can do and it doesn't happen very often, hopefully. I mean, if you're screwing up a lot, maybe you're in the wrong line of business, but it shouldn't happen a lot. Number two is you solved their problem. And a lot of lawyers probably think, well, that's what I do. I solve problems and then they don't have problems anymore and then I don't have to deal with that client anymore, which I don't think is necessarily true, right? Like, what was the I mean, it's certainly common if you're a divorce lawyer or an estate planning lawyer that you got them the thing they came there for and done. Yep. There are... Well, but estate planning lawyers, uh, estate plans need to be renewed. And I think we've seen statistics at some point showing that almost nobody comes back to the same lawyer when they need more estate planning work, which is probably a huge missed opportunity. Yep. If you can't have adjacent services or follow-up services, fine. And maybe they just do, you solve their problem and they leave. But I think it's worth considering, can you get more out of those clients? Do they need more from you that you can provide? 
Um, so it's at least worth considering that, but developing ancillary legal services basically and, and that ancillary business. Number three is natural attrition. People die, obviously. Or move out of your jurisdiction. Or move out of your jurisdiction. That's another good one. Um, maybe they make friends with another lawyer who does the same thing you do and that lawyer becomes the person that they want to connect with. Um, that's going to shade into another one of the the five items. But yeah, people just sort of naturally move from one thing to the next and that's okay. There's probably not a whole lot you can do about that. Uh, number four, though, is one of the big ones. They He, he f- characterizes it as they fall out of habit. Because what he's talking about is when you're billing somebody monthly for a service, that's a habit. And they just do it because maybe they like you, maybe they're loyal to you. But eventually they go, well, I'm not really getting the value from this. Which is why it's so important for lawyers to make sure that clients appreciate the value they're giving. Part of what you do is solving the legal problem. Part of what you need to do is show them that you're solving their legal problem. Now, lots of lawyers don't bill by the month or by the week or by the year. Lots of lawyers bill either flat fees or hourly fees. But during that time, you still need to make sure that person sees value. And if you're going to have a relationship with that client over time, you need to make sure that they see value in staying connected to you or staying friends with you. And maybe that's as simple as doing a monthly or a weekly newsletter like Noah does. Um, But you need to make sure that they believe that it is valuable to stay in your circle so that they're ready to hire you when it's time to hire you. Um, And then the fifth one is that they have no connection to you, that they lack loyalty to you. And we've talked about this before. Lots of lawyers think that, well, the real value that we have that nobody can get from online forms is the relationship with clients. But the relationship in most cases is they've been to your conference room twice and they were annoyed by how hard it was to find parking and they couldn't find your office in the building like that's not loyalty. Yeah, I mean, I think four and five in the context of a law practice can be related, which is it's not just having someone on a monthly subscription. I mean, that's a there are people who do that in their law practices. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting pricing model, but it's not that common. I think m- more likely it's something along the lines of that newsletter, which is staying top of mind. And maybe that's an email newsletter, but maybe it's cutting something out of the newspaper and sending it to them or, you know, mentioning something interesting and useful on their Facebook page or sending them a handwritten note so that you stay top of mind. Certainly, if you have subscription pricing, then making sure you're delivering on that monthly fee in some way is important. But even if you're not actively providing them any legal services six months after their will, staying in touch with them in a relevant way, I think both make sure you kind of don't lose that habit and that you stay relevant to them. I think Noah made a really interesting, uh, he gave an anecdote about his biggest customer ever who had been subscribed to his email, who had, they had, they had talked, they weren't friends, but they had talked about business for years. And after two or three or five or whatever years, the guy finally calls him and says, okay, I'm ready. And this is the kind of client he hopped on a plane for, flew down and they signed a huge contract for, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. And I think lawyers sometimes uh, get distracted by, you know, all the online marketing opportunities out there. And we essentially treat our potential clients as if you drop by our website, you're a potential client, but you have to nurture those relationships with your referral sources, with your people who might one day become your clients so that eventually you can earn their business and they can become your biggest client. And that that sort of that habit is the habit of just being friends with you. It's the loyalty because you are have a relationship with that person and you're providing value from them. A number of people throughout the two days 
provided examples of loyalty that I think are cute, but maybe helpful. Um, so Noah was saying like, if he's late with his email, people start emailing him to ask him if he's okay. Um, <laughs> which I think is- a sign of a sticky newsletter. It's a, it's a sign of a sticky newsletter, but also that people actually care about you. Yep. So I think that's one good thing. Um, yeah. And if you're, if the people who you are trying to add to your network of referrals and potential clients and stuff, if they reach out to you to schedule lunch, like that's another good sign. If you don't have to go drag them off to a coffee shop all the time, if they are actually saying, hey, I haven't heard from Sam in a while, maybe we should go get coffee. Um, that seems like another good sign to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the things that ties all these ideas together is that they have to be actual relationships and that mm -hmm. does not need to mean that you're snapchatting with people or sending them pictures of your lunch but it does mean like you need to know what is valuable to them as a person and what motivates them so that if you see a blog post or something you could forward it to them and mm -hmm. say hey this one made me think of you or to include such things in your weekly newsletter that they're desperately waiting for well and i think I always feel like some people get so distracted by the gimmickry of marketing. Yep. Right? Like, like what you need to do is send out an email and it has to have stuff in it every week. And, and that, that's just gimmickry. That's not, that's not a relationship, right? That, that's maybe a way to stay top of mind with somebody you have a relationship with, but it's a gimmick. And so, I think what Noah was talking about is exactly what you pointed out. It's, it's making sure there's something real there. Um, another, another marketer talked about, um, he, he was actually really annoying, but um, <laughs> but he pointed out that all of their marketing efforts now are not geared towards getting people to download a white paper or click on a button. All of their marketing efforts are geared towards sparking a real response, right? So, what they really want is for somebody to reply to their email so that they can start a real live person-to-person -person conversation with them. So, all this online marketing gimmickry that, that they do is just trying to get somebody to have a real human interaction because relationships are really where it's at. And I think that, so I think that's a really good and accurate observation of what's going on there. So those are Noah Fleming's five things. I will add a link to, um, I think he's got a book uh, out there and I'll, I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. Cool. And now here's my conversation with Patrick Pallas, which is really fun and too short. So I think you're going to get to the end of it and I think you're going to enjoy it. And then you're going to wonder when we're bringing him back and we will. Hi, this is Patrick Pallas uh, from Tacoma, Washington. I have a workers' compensation and personal injury firm. We have about five attorneys and uh, 20 people, and I'm the past president of the Washington State Bar Association. Awesome. Thank you for being here today, Patrick. And you are also one of our TBD law attendees from our inaugural TBD law back in August, which is awesome. That was really an amazing program, by the way. Thank you for that invitation. I walked away with just pages of uh, information that we brought back to the office and and began using right away. Awesome. That's so cool. Well, maybe, I guess maybe we'll touch on some of that today, but I like to get the origin story of everybody's firm. So, give me the origin story of your firm. Gosh. Um, so, I started practicing in, in Chicago uh, and I guess just kind of fell in love with, with blue collar uh, law when I moved here to Tacoma. It's a, it's a working city. It's kind of a gritty city. And so, doing uh, workers' compensation fit in. I grew up in a blue collar background. Um, and so I, it was just an area law that, that seemed uh, to fit. I didn't have to wear a suit and tie. I was out 
you know, meeting every, every day, uh, dirty hands, hardworking, uh, real people in my community. And I guess it was, it was easy to fall in love with that area a lot and, and practice workers' comp. So, did you start out solo or did you start out with partners or, or associates or how did it grow to five attorneys and 20 staff? No, I, I'm sure this is a familiar story. You know, I started by myself. Uh, my wife was my office manager for uh, many years, and we just started growing uh, year by year, uh, day by day. You know the old story about, you know, it takes, you know, so many years to earn your first million, and then the <laughs> second million comes quick. I mean, I was by myself forever, and then I hired on a lawyer and a paralegal, and uh, the last couple of years have just been exploding. We've, we've hired on four new people just this year alone. If you had to point to something that like clicked and made it work, what was what was the click? Like what was the moment that it all kind of shifted? Uh, you know, I, I think success has come with kind of counterintuitively. Um, I think a lot of people think the more people you have in your firm, the more management, the, the less work you can do, the harder it is. I heard a lot of lawyers complain about that. In my firm, exactly the opposite. Uh, the more people we hired on, the more it gave me the time to do what I wanted to do and focus the firm in a way that I thought was the most productive. And so as we grow, each person that comes on, I hand off a piece to somebody else and then strengthen my concentration on how I want this firm to grow and how I want uh, our success to come about. So uh, every time I can hire somebody, I do, and it just keeps getting better. It's it's my impression, uh, knowing you a little bit, talking with you at TVD Law and, and just out, out in Washington when I came out there, you really do seem to focus on your law firm as a business as well as obviously trying to deliver great legal services. And it it seems like in order to get that efficiency from each new hire, you have to think about it in, in that way in terms of processes and procedures and making sure that you've got all your organization set up. And what, was that something that you've always focused on or is that something that you gradually picked up when you needed to organize all those people? No, always been that way from the time I was, just, uh, you know, just by myself. I said, I need to make a footprint that's 10 times larger than I am so <laughs> that as I grow, we'll have we'll have space. And so I've always had, uh, you know, a five year plan. I've always had uh, to create an infrastructure for the firm uh, that was much larger than the firm itself. And it's always paid off. I've never regretted putting in those extra hours and extra time hiring consultants or reading books or uh, uh, trying to expand the firm. It's, it's, it's time well spent. And you're right. I, I really do figure this as a, as a business, because if I'm going to be successful, I need to be able to run uh, a high level business so I can have a high level practice. Do you find, cause this always comes up when you, we start talking about law as a business. Do you feel like there is a trade-off between thinking of your firm as a business and the quality of service that you give to your clients? I don't forsake um, what I do for my clients um, because you run a, I run a business. In fact, it's really the exact opposite. We had a, a management meeting, a retreat all day at Avo, in fact, the other day. And so one of the lawyers said, well, do we really want to get bigger? And I said, we absolutely want to get bigger because every time I can give a piece to somebody else who's a specialist in something and take it off my plate where I'm a generalist, um, then we really can build a stronger law firm that can better represent people. We can do our discovery better. We can write our pleadings better. We can analyze things better. You know, there, there's no end to that. And so I think that the stronger we get as a law firm, the stronger I am as a business, 
Uh, the more solvent we are, uh, the, the more we grow, the more tech we add, uh, the more strength we have to really practice law at a level that uh, I don't think what I thought was possible 10 years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I caught a hint of like, you're actually trying to design uh, your legal services in there. Like it's, it sounded a little bit like you're, you're taking each piece and saying, how can we make this the best service? Um, and you're trying to bring in somebody whose job is to do just that one thing um, or whose job is to at least focus on that thing and deliver service there. And you t- I, I imagine you're taking pieces piece by piece and trying to make each thing as good as it can be. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just blowing that out of proportion, but I thought I kind of heard the suggestion of that and what you just said. No, that's true. I mean, but isn't this part of a much bigger discussion? I mean, I think <laughs> everyone, everyone agrees that lawyers aren't great business people. We're not good accountants. We're not good marketers, right? I mean, there's so many pieces that we don't do well. And as much as I try to do all of them well as a, as a practitioner, a small firm, the reality is the more I can hire people who are really experts in this. If I want someone who's good at communications, you know, I hire a communications director who is who understands social media so much better than I do and has all day to do it, right? I mean, well, let me well, let me ask you because you we were, we were chatting beforehand. And you said, "Ask me about the jobs that I have that you probably won't find at most firms." So tell me about those. Well, so one of the things I guess there's a couple of stages here, but I'll make them short. One of the things that that I had been doing for years as president of the bar is running around the state and telling people, "Do you see what's happening with tech? Do you see how the profession is changing? We need to retool. You need to pay attention." You know, we really need to make this shift. And I spent uh, seven years uh, doing that, and particularly the year as president doing that. And then once I stopped being president, I could stop talking the talk and really begin walking the walk, right? Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I did is said, now we're going paperless and we're going to bring in as much tech as we can. And we're going to walk away a little bit from the practice of law while we do this. Uh, as much retooling as we as as we can um, manage and keep the firm uh, uh, successful, and so in doing that, every time we we brought in a piece of tech, we found jobs were disappearing. We didn't need jobs. My firm was scared of that. We had four people who like hated tech, like don't do that to us. We're going to lose our jobs. And so every time we added some new piece, uh, we started transitioning people into other jobs. I was loyal to my folks. And so we started finding new jobs for them. We had somebody who was a, uh, a paralegal, but had some tech skills. And as soon as we went paperless, we needed somebody who looked something like uh, a docket manager, mm-hmm. but a docket manager with coding skills. And so we have this docket manager coder who writes uh, <laughs> programs and creates zaps for us and integrates um, everything that comes in and out of this office into a, into a database or into Trello or into Slack or into Clio or into a, uh, a data box database or something. So we have our coder docket manager. Um, we needed someone who could help transition us through all the tech projects because it's a big deal. We had mm-hmm. 20 people to train and get on board. And so we hired a tech project manager. And so she didn't know anything about law, never been in the law business before. And I was great with that. And uh, so now she helps uh, create, train, and implement uh, tech projects as they come into the firm. We have a a tech management team that meets twice a week for an hour and a half 
And we go through this long list and, and work through projects and put them in order that we want to bring them out and, and develop them and train for them. So she is head of all of that. So that's another job that probably isn't in, in many law firms. Uh, we created somebody who is uh, a, a client intake liaison. And that doesn't, that, that doesn't really describe exactly what they are. We had to create a whole program around taking in potential new clients, uh, bringing them into the system, and then training the clients how to use our system. And so this person is that intake liaison that works with the tech for clients so clients don't get lost or confused or frustrated. We want their experience to be really as seamless as possible. Very cool. We also brought in uh, a, a full-time communications director, and I think law firms do have that person. We use uh, her for a lot of social media uh, and to manage uh, some reputation management for the members of the firm uh, to make sure we get reviews that people have uh, great uh, experiences at the firm. So we have, you know, a lot of net promoter score data coming and going out of our firm. So she manages all of that. And then we have uh, one other person here uh, who is doing some coding for us, who's a lawyer and switches back and forth between um, lawyer and coder. And having that person with those skills um, is really awesome. So I think we have at least four, maybe five positions that for a small firm like mine, maybe are unique. Uh, maybe these are the kind of positions that other people are finding they need too, but they have been uh, instrumental in our transition into this new world. That's really cool. And I remember a while back having a conversation about the courts and how they're trying to integrate tech to be more efficient. And they were talking about similar things that you just did, uh, which kind of seemed crazy to me coming out of a court. <laughs> but but it was because they wanted to be able to do more. They wanted to push stuff off their plate onto their tech and then get people in there that can really think intelligently about systems and organizing it and client experience and designing around, um, well, in their case, not clients, but uh, but court users. And, uh, and I think that's really cool. And I, I wonder how many other firms are finding that they have room to do that but it does seem like you're, you might be one of the few that really are. Well, you know, there's, there's really two drivers, uh, at least for us. One is uh, trying to create a seamless tech experience for, uh, for our clients. I mean, I think that's, um, that's really important. But the other piece of it is really uh, maybe more practical or pragmatic, which is I just think, and I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud to you, but I just think so much tech sucks. <laughs> I mean, I, re I, I really, really want some good tech for lawyers. Yeah. Uh, it's starting. It's coming. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm thankful for Clio. They've started something, you know, uh, so radically different. And we use Clio as a database and it does good things for us, but it doesn't do everything we need. Right. You know, I, I, I liked Lexicata. They came in with a great idea, but it didn't do what we needed to do. So we literally created our own Lexicata from scratch that does all the things Lexicata does, only it's completely uh, made for, for our firm. And if there were things out there that really catered uh, to smaller solo practitioners better, uh, we wouldn't be out there coding and creating and doing things for ourselves. So until that day comes, I think that's a big motivator <laughs> for everybody just trying to get out there and create what we can, do what we can to, to make this system work. Well, I, that that's, makes good sense. And, I, you know, I think you're right. In fact, I think lawyers basically got started 
by me griping about how much legal tech sucks. <laughs> um, right. And, and, and it does, it does feel like we're at sort of the, um, the middle of the beginning of that not being the case, <laughs> but it's still happening. You know, Marty Smith, the manager, he, I was talking to him the other night and he says, you know, everybody says lawyers are late adopters and we're the slowest to react and it's all our fault. He says, I don't believe that. I think there's not enough good tech out there. And I'm, I'm 100% with him. I, every lawyer that I know in my circle is doing everything they can uh, to make their firms better, to, to, to find tech advantages, to find tech solutions. They're just hard to find right now. But you're right. They're coming along. We're, we're getting closer. That's a, that's a really cool observation. I'm going to take uh, two minutes now for messages from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about something that I skipped ahead on, uh, which was your experience as bar president um, and, and what that was like for you going around talking to lawyers around Washington. And we've already talked a little bit about it, but I want to talk about what that transition back into being a full-time practitioner without being the bar president was like for you. So two minutes and then we're going to hit on those things. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is, you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Zero, including Lawyerist. Get a free trial at Xero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted. So when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. So, Patrick, tell me about being the bar president. It was, you mentioned seven years leading up to being bar president. Does that just mean you were really involved in the bar or does Washington have a crazy onboarding process for that or what? <laughs> you know, I made it a practice from uh, the day I got my license in Washington to always volunteer work. And I think I volunteered somewhere between uh, at least 10 hours uh a week. And it's just always been that way. Mm. And it's gone from different organizations, you know, from the trial errors organizations to bar organizations to something always. Um, so I just got used to uh, having chunks of my time uh, outside of the office doing uh, doing volunteer work. Um, so but the seven years was during the time I was on the Board of Governors, which is the 14 lawyers that oversee the practice of law through the other 37,000 lawyers in the state of Washington. And as I made my way through that ascension, you end up I ended up being treasurer and then president elect and then and then president. So by the time I was done with all of it, it was about a seven year process. for me. Wow. Um, and then you became the bar president and you had a couple of um, personal initiatives. One is getting out there and talking about future of law practice and tech. 
And the other one was mindfulness, which keeps cropping up on our podcast <laughs> because it's getting more and more popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I had two loves and I was a little torn between them. You, you only really get one focus point as your as as president and um i came in thinking that maybe the most important thing i could offer was better health for lawyers you know there's there's mm -hmm. such problems among lawyers for uh stress and anxiety and depression and alcoholism and drugs and you know there's people uh, shifting out of the practice and being miserable at the practice and, and i just thought that's wrong we have a, a really wonderful practice and everyone should be proud to have their kids coming into law and should be making this a, a great place to be. And maybe if we had a little more love, you know, maybe if there is uh, a little more community, uh, maybe if people took some time to uh, get a hold of their emotions, uh, to have that pause, to look inward, uh, to realize that the law doesn't have to be uh, eat what you kill, uh, that everything's a fight. Um, and so I, I, I thought, mindfulness and good health, uh, a little community was a good focus. And so we spent time doing that. In fact, uh, I made our governors um, take three to five minutes before every meeting and, and meditate. And that's all the liaisons to the judges and everybody else. And, and frankly, a lot of people just thought I was absolutely crazy. Uh, but I got a lot of thank yous over time. And as we talked about it more, we did a um, uh, a magazine that focused on mindfulness and uh, Gina Cho, who you know, who's mm -hmm. now published The Anxious Lawyer, uh, was uh, really getting some traction at the same time. And it just kind of ignited. And there's been a lot of traction on, on mindfulness since then. And uh, I was glad to be at least a small part of that introducing the lawyers in this state to, uh, to mindfulness. Uh, so tell me, do you, are they still meditating before meetings? They are not. They are not. Uh, I had some tell me privately. Sad that was gone. Others, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a tough thing to do. And I'm now on the uh, the National Conference of Bar Presidents on their on the programming committee. And so, for example, we're planning right now uh, having a plenary session about mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness in uh, times of crisis. Mindful leadership. And so we're going to be training uh, our presidents of bars and uh, across the country, some about mindfulness when we come to Miami in February. Cool. Um, so you are in the, the unique position of maybe not unique, but you're very tech oriented um, and you're you're also very involved in the bar association or you have been right. um, and, and kind of still are through the National Conference of Bar Presidents. And so what's your take on the whole uh, do bar associations still provide value and and what do you think that is because lots of really tech savvy newer lawyers are like eh, bar association whatever um wh what's your take on that boy um that's a really a good question i, I think bars do offer uh a, a lot of value it, it does depend upon the leadership uh, of the bar and the direction that they're driving the bar um in, in our bar uh, my focus other than mindfulness, was talking about the future of the profession. Uh, we formed a, uh, uh, a future of the profession committee, uh, and I chaired that for two years, and we put together a panel of great people. And this was a few years back now. Uh, Mark Britton was on that from Avo. Dan Lear was on that before he was part of I Avo. suppose you had some unique opportunities to bring some pretty cool people on board there. 
We, we did. You know, Marty Smith was part of it. Greg McLaughlin was part of it. Paula yeah. Littlewood, who was our executive director, John Grant. Um, you know, I think we all kind of uh, came up uh, a little bit through this, all having each other to lean on uh, where we didn't know each other before. Tech had brought us together. And we spent those two years uh, talking about the future and trying to find solutions. We, we put out um, a couple of reports. And I think that brings value to our profession. Uh, it's helping people retool, helping people find ways to practice more efficiently, helping people uh, reach out, finding solutions uh, for the access to justice gap by finding ways to decrease costs and increase efficiency and make law more accessible, and at the same time, helping lawyers make money do it, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of value there, not just for lawyers, but for the community around us, and and looking on solutions to find uh, ways to 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 practice law better and more efficiently is better for everybody. So I think that's some of the value that bars can bring. Kind of bringing people together to have those conversations, which is harder to do outside that context, especially locally. It is. It's just you know when you're dealing with the rank and file, like like I said in Washington, it's thirty seven thousand. Trying to get a lot of people onto the same page is challenging. I, I it's hard to get a microphone that everyone listens to, uh, and so you push out a lot of information through social media, through magazines, through email, through public speaking uh, to try to get people uh, to listen and come on board, and 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 you offer lots of you know uh, benefits to. Uh, uh, to workers or to, I'm sorry, to lawyers uh, around the state. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done for bars. It's part of the reason with the National Council of Bar Presidents looking ways to train train presidents mm-hmm. to be more efficient, to be more effective, to get the ears of their members and to show them what uh, what we can do together. Well, I, I like your answer because um, it it's it's more than just, hey, let's offer more CLE. <laughs> which, yeah, no, no. which too often seems to be the solution is let's offer more CLE and, and listservs. No, in fact, I like your, your solution there. Let's offer TBD. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so Anti-CLE. I mean, that, yeah. that's, uh, that's the answer. That's what I, I like to think so. Um, so let me, let me take us on maybe not 180 degrees, but a, a 90 degree uh, digression, which is like many, uh, Small firm lawyers that I know, you have some quirky, interesting side projects. You own a, I think you own a yoga, yoga studio and a winery. Right. Are there others right. that I'm missing? <laughs> well, there's, there's others I'm dying to do, but those <laughs> are the two that are actually in existence at the moment. So, how did the yoga studio come or, or how did the winery come about? Which is, which is earlier? Well, the yoga studio came about first. Um, I, I have been, been, you know probably like you and like everybody else, you know, we run or we bike or live in the weight room or I did mixed martial arts for a couple of years. Um, and I was looking for a way, um, that fit into my life a little better. Um, lawyers wear these two hats. At least a lot of people do. I certainly did where you're at home and maybe you're a kinder, gentler, softer, and you're at work and you're that, uh, warrior, you know, fighting your way through the day mm-hmm. and inconsistency of life didn't work for me. And I was happy to find that exercise, at least that's why I saw it, exercise was one of those ways of bridging that gap. And so um, I liked yoga uh, and my wife did yoga. And uh, as a way to have something in common, we started doing it more often together, fell in love with it, said, why don't we create a studio? I think we can create a community from this that's that's can be large and meaningful and and, uh, and and bring this to them. And we did, and the community uh, exploded. 
21 people immediately said, we want to be founders. We want to give money. We want to start this with you. And so we had 21 people in our community immediately on the first day uh, buying a year-long pass wow. and become founders of our studio. And since then, uh, I've lost track of numbers, but I think we've probably had 800, 900 people through our doors in the last uh, in the last uh, two years. And it flows over into law. Uh, people in my office come do yoga. Uh, a lot of lawyers in town, judges. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have. It's true. I can be practicing yoga with somebody one minute and be in front of them uh, in court uh, the next. <laughs> it's a it's a protected space. Yeah. So we don't talk about those things. You know, I try to tell but, people that like uh, I I I have never tried really put this together in a in a cohesive theory or post or something, but. Uh, there is a lot of value in just doing what you love out in the community and you will attract people who are interested in what you're interested in or who are just interested because you're interested and it weirdly becomes sort of a networking or marketing opportunity even though that ha that is nowhere near its purpose. There's a lot of people I've met that I would have never met uh, but for having a yoga yeah. studio and it's all a funny thing, you know, two things have happened uh, and I guess you know this, I, I grew a beard and on some days it's a larger <laughs> beard than, than, than usual. Uh, and I practice a lot of yoga and talk about it. And for whatever reason, that's made me accessible. You know, the, the, the clean shaven guy in the suit and tie who's a lawyer is just not as accessible as the bearded yogi. I've been trying and to convince Aaron of that for years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy that. Nothing's changed about me or my personality, but from outward appearances, I make a lot more friends now than I used to being a suited, clean-shaven lawyer. I mean, it kind of worked on me when I met you uh, at the Washington State Bar Association uh, solo small convention. I was like, oh, here's just another clean-shaven lawyer in a suit. But <laughs> the, the beard and the yogi thing totally worked on me. Well, you know, when you throw wine into all of that, it just well, gets... Well, right. I was going to ask. So, how does that come about? Well, everybody wants to be your friend, I guess, when you make wine. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... I had always wanted to do it. And you know, I have those things that bucket list, like I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And somehow you get through the years and haven't done it. I just sat down literally one night and I said, I'm going to do this tomorrow. And I'll be damned if doors didn't just open up almost immediately. And as long as there was a green light and a door opened, I just kept running through it. And the next thing you know, uh, I'm buying a couple of tons of grapes and I have <laughs> a, a winemaker and I bought a building, uh, and equipment starts coming in, stainless steel tanks and buying barrels from France and, you know, all brand new <laughs> stuff to me, but crazy fun. And, yeah. and, and you're crushing grapes. And, uh, you know, one of the most um, fabulous experiences of my life was uh, driving from Tacoma to Eastern Washington at sunrise and getting uh, into the vineyard just as the sun was coming up. And the workers who had been there, you know, cutting grapes since midnight or just leaving. And you, I, I just walked up to these giant fermenters, you know, four foot by four foot by four foot containers of, you know, a couple thousand pounds of these beautiful grapes. And it smelled fabulous. And we were on the on the Columbia River and the sun was coming up. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like the happiest moment of my entire life. And we're going to make wine, too. <laughs> what do you think it is about I, something about lawyers like starting side projects is a thing and one of my theories is that once you've started one company it's just way easier to start the second and third and fourth one um, but the other is maybe I don't know do we get bored or something I, you know I can I can certainly speak for myself I, I think the the uh, the ADD in my life is is palpable sometimes <laughs> I mean I, uh, 
my staff knows that I have a great idea and I'll give them ideas and I'll say, let's do this and this and this. Here, you guys go do this. And I have something else I got to do now. And, um, <laughs> and then they follow through and they're, they're fabulous that way. And we get things implemented, not because I have some stick to but because they do. Um, and starting companies is the same thing. You get a great idea. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And then all you have to do is start it and you go and do it. And, um, uh, there's another half dozen companies I would gladly start, but <laughs> I'm trying to get these trying to get these a chance to grow before I, I change my attention over to do something else. Come on, I mean you, you're some way. Look at all the things that you're managing in oh absolutely in, in your life. Yeah, no, I I I can't point the finger at anybody else without pointing it back at myself. So, <laughs> well, maybe uh, we'll have you back on the podcast in a couple of years to talk about the three more businesses that you've started. Right, and we'll do yoga, we'll drink wine, and we'll talk about law and plus whatever else. I like I like the way this can shape up. It sounds perfect. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for being with us today. This was a fun conversation, and I, I loved learning more about your practice and your firm. Sam, thank you very much for the invitation, and you know what? Wonderful talking with uh, with you, to my friend. Thank you. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.